Today we're continuing our journey through the Christmas story, looking at the different voices of Christmas, and our focus today will be on Mary, the mother of, our, of the Christ child. And I'm going to go ahead and ask Olivia to kind of start working this direction. <clears throat> we've got a little sketch that we've been reading for each one of these voices of Christmas, and Olivia is going to read uh, the sketch today entitled, Mary, the Voice of Wonder. Uh, listen closely as she reads. Uh, imagine you're hearing the story once again for the first time. Olivia, thank you. Of the twelve voices of Christmas, you will hear none more astonished than mine. What happened to the others leading up to the first Christmas may have been miraculous, but what happened to me was completely unique. My name is Mary. The day started as any other day. My father was in the field and my mother had gone to the market. I was mending clothes and, I admit, daydreaming about Joseph, the man I was soon to marry. Suddenly, I was startled to see a complete stranger standing in the doorway. Before I could ask him to leave, he stepped through the door and said, Hail, thou art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. He caught me completely off guard. Who was he? What did he want? He didn't seem dangerous in a threatening way, but neither did he seem altogether safe. It was then I realized he was an angel. But what did he mean by calling me highly favored? My family wasn't special. We were poor, humble people living in Nazareth. And I'm sure you've heard that we don't have the greatest reputation. The angel didn't leave me time to think. He continued, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. My mind was whirling, trying to keep up with the angel's announcement. We were, were the old prophecies coming true all at once? I'd often heard the scriptures read in the synagogue. I had listened to my father talk with the men in the village about the coming son of David, and our family did trace its lineage back to David. Could I be living in a time when these things could come to pass? But how could any son of mine reign on David's throne? The throne of David descended through the line of Solomon, while my family tree goes back through Nathan. So if my my son were to sit on David's throne, that right would legally have to come through another family. That's when I thought of Joseph. He was a descendant of David through Solomon. Would he be the father? But... What the angel said didn't make me think that this baby was coming from Joseph. So I asked, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? I think Gabriel almost smiled, amused that I would, be, I would have a problem with such a small detail. My father used to laugh at the story about the man who met God on the road from Jericho. God told him, that he would give him his horse wings to fly and turn all his flour in in his cart to gold. But the man refused, saying, my wife could never bake bread from gold. Here I was, being told the greatest news of all time, that the very Son of God was coming to earth to rule forever, and all I could do was wonder how I would get pregnant. But even that detail was a wonder beyond comprehending. The angel explained that the Holy Spirit would come over me in such a way that God's power would encompass me, 
and in the shadow of his Shekinah glory, I would conceive. What a wonder. Certainly the birth of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah and the birth of John to Zacharias and Elizabeth were miraculous, but the birth of my baby was more miraculous, more than miraculous even. It was amazingly unique. He would be born to me, a virgin. He would be conceived without a human father. He would both be human and divine, both son of God and son of, son of humble Nazarene girl. I told the angel, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it unto me according to thy word. You know the rest of the story. Everything Gabriel announced came true. With wonder, I cuddled my newborn in the Bethle that Bethlehem stable. With wonder, I listened to the shepherds recount their incredible story. With wonder, I pondered all these things in my heart. Yes, I remember the first Christmas perhaps better than anyone. But with each passing year, my wonder continued to grow. My song shall always be, my soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. What a wonder. Thank you, Olivia. All right, I appreciate that. That helps set the stage. Brings back to mind the story that we know so well. As we begin today, I'd like to actually back up a little bit further to Luke chapter 1 and the first four verses. Uh, last week, we skipped right over these and we jumped right into the birth of John the Baptist. But I, I think these are important. Let's look at these quickly. <clears throat> at the beginning of Luke's gospel, here's what he says. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they deliver them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. That's who he's writing this, this gospel to. That thou mightest know the certainty of these things, wherein thou hast been instructed. Uh, Luke tells us that he set out to write this gospel account. And in so doing, he compiled an orderly and accurate account of the life of Christ by speaking to eyewitnesses. People who were there and had firsthand information, they'd seen it with their own eyes. Eyewitness information is the best information, isn't it? And that was Luke's goal as he was working through this. And he says on that basis, Theophilus, you can have complete certainty that what I'm recording for you in this gospel is accurate. And that's significant. Luke, by occupation, was a physician. We know that as we've read through the Bible. Uh, he was used to asking questions. Isn't that what doctors do? Uh, when you go to the doctor, at least the good ones, you're like, just give me the prescription. He's like, no, i got to find out a few things first. And so they ask all kinds of questions, sometimes personal questions, sometimes questions we don't want to answer. Um, but that's what they do. They ask questions. And I think the skill that Luke had developed over the years served him very well as he was interviewing eyewitnesses and compiling the record that we see here in his gospel. Uh, he was detail-oriented. Uh, he researched accurately, and, and what he recorded was, was correct. Uh, concerned with precision, we see the details in his account that are just amazing. And so it's with that idea in mind that I picture Luke coming to interview Mary. Can you see them sitting across the table at the local Jewish coffee shop, Hebrews, sharing a mocha latte? I mean, does that come to your mind? Maybe I'm using too much imagination as I'm working through this. Where did he probably meet her? I'm sure it was at John's house. Remember that John had been given the responsibility of caring for Mary after Jesus was crucified. 
So it's likely that that's where they're meeting, sitting across the table there uh, from uh, John, the beloved disciple's house. Introductions have been made, and now Luke is sitting there, and he's looking at Mary. She's older by far. She's not the young woman that we read about here and that we'll read about here in just a little bit, likely in her 60s or 70s, probably similar age to Zacharias and Elizabeth, who we read about last week. As he looked at her, he could see the pain and the hardships that she'd endured through her difficult life had lined her face and bowed her shoulders and back. As we read on further in the story, it's, it's Simeon that tells us, I earlier prophesied that a sword would pierce through her, whole, through her heart. And that indeed happened as Mary watched her son ridiculed through his life and then suffer a horrible death. How could she watch that and not be affected? Yet as Luke began to ask about the early days, I think those memories flooded back to her mind and put a glow on her face and a faint smile on her lips that replaced the lines of hardship with a look of wonder and amazement as she recalled what God had indeed done for her and then vicariously for each one of us as well. So let's look at this account. Let's look at it through the eyes of Mary. And we're going to begin in verse 26 of Luke chapter 1 with Mary's encounter with Gabriel. Let's read a couple of these verses, and we'll just kind of read them together as we go through the passage. It was in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So Gabriel comes first to Mary, and it's in the city of Nazareth. It's interesting. There's a contrast here. Where does he go earlier? He goes to Zacharias, a priest. Where does he meet with him? In the temple in Jerusalem. And now he's coming to a poor girl named Mary, and he's coming to a backwater town with a poor reputation named Nazareth. The contrast couldn't be any more stark. And as you read through this and you study the history of this, the religious leaders could not imagine that that a prophet, let alone the Christ child, would be born in Nazareth and would come from this area. Remember what the Sanhedrin said to Nicodemus uh, later on? Can any good thing, can, can anything come from Nazareth? No prophet uh, comes out of Galilee. I was mixing up what Nathaniel said, and we'll talk about that in a minute. There's no prophet that comes from Galilee. Uh, surely Jesus couldn't be born there. But this little town of Nazareth was located at the base of the Lebanon Mountains. It's a beautiful location. Uh, one commentator I was reading said there's 15 mountains well, mountains by their standards, hills by our standards, uh, that kind of surround the city of Nazareth, and it's set like a jewel in the midst of those, of those hills. It's a beautiful area. Um, this area is, lo- is populated by Samaritans and half-Jews, and for that reason, it was looked down on by the religious leaders of their day. Uh, to them, being from Nazareth was as close to being a Gentile as a Jew could get. That's the way they looked at it. Uh, not, a, not a great place to be from, from that perspective. Nazareth was located along a major thoroughfare. In fact, uh, the major central route that went right up north and south through the middle of, of Galilee and Samaria and, and Judea, uh, Nazareth was, was located right on that central route, the one that everybody avoided because of Samaria, right? It's interesting, it's also just a little bit uh, north of where all three of those major routes converge. And so this was a place where many people that were traveling would travel through, and so soldiers and caravans would be coming in and out, and they'd be housing people, and it was a rough-and-tumble kind of a place. It was a blue-collar town, kind of what Columbia Falls has been known for for many years, with the aluminum plant and with Plum Creek and and all that's taken place here. Uh, Columbia Falls has been the the blue-collar in this whole valley. I think Nazareth was much the same thing, and it was Nathaniel that said in John chapter 1, can anything good come from Nazareth? 
Really? Nazareth? It had that kind of a reputation. But that's where Gabriel came, and he came to Mary uh, there in Nazareth, and, and he's talking to her. And the scriptures give us some information about who Mary was. It says that she's a virgin, espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and her name was Mary. First of all, she was a virgin. Folks, that's significant. The truth of that statement has been debated and has been denied for centuries, and I believe that Satan is behind that attack. Because if he can get people to disbelieve the, the virgin birth of Christ, they have to also disagree with the deity of Christ. The two go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. It rises and falls on that truth. The word virgin, the, the Greek word, appears in the Gospels in the New Testament 14 different times. Every single time it's translated by this same English word, virgin. In fact, it appears in the verse here two different times. And if you look at it, the author, Luke, could have used a pronoun for the second time, and it would have made perfect sense. Look at it. To a virgin, a spouse to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name. He could have just said, and her name was Mary. And it would have flowed maybe even a little bit better. But he's using it twice there because I think he's making the point. Mary's question to the angel down in verse 34, how can these things be, seeing I know not a man? That verifies the perspective as well, that it's an accurate translation. She truly had not been in an intimate relationship with a man. She was indeed a virgin. It's Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 in the Old Testament that first points out that this was going to be a requirement for the lady that bore the Christ child. And that, that word that's used in Isaiah 7, 14, that's been attacked even more than the New Testament words. Many will say that it means young woman. In fact, many Bible translations have... have uh, have succumbed to that as well and translate it that way. And I'll admit the word is broader and it can include that, but no time when that word is used in the Old Testament can it not mean a virgin. I believe that's what it means. And then when you look in Matthew chapter 1 and you see how Matthew translates, uh, he quotes uh, from Isaiah 7.14 and he uses the same word here that we see the Gospel of Luke. Uh, they're making a point. Folks, in, in Isaiah 7 it says, "...the Lord shall give you a sign, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son." A young woman bearing a child and having a son is not a sign. That's an everyday occurrence. But a virgin having a son? Now that's something to write home about. And that only happened one time in history. And that's what's recorded for us here in the book of Luke. The angel, it says, came to Mary who was a virgin. Secondly, it says she was a spouse to a man whose name was Joseph. How many of you, in the course of your common conversation this week, used the word espoused? No one. Oh, Susan Halfrit. No, I don't think she was just rubbing her chin. All right. Well, I kind of figured that might be the case. It's not something that we commonly use. So if I were to tell you that it, it, a synonym would be the word betrothed, does that help you? Well, thanks, Pastor Mark. That just clears it right up for me. I know exactly what you're talking about now. Uh, these aren't words that we use every day, right? And so it's good to understand a little bit about uh, life in the culture that Mary grew up in. You see, Jewish marriage took place in two phases. The first phase was called the betrothal period. He or she was a spouse to Joseph. They were in this betrothal phase. And this would last anywhere from 10 to 12 months. It was a legally binding ceremony. The two would come together. They'd pledge their love and their devotion to each other. And it was legally binding. In fact, to separate even a betrothal, it would take an act of divorce, a writing of divorcement. At the end of that ceremony, the, the young lady would go and she'd be getting her things in order. Uh, preparing to set up her household, acquiring the things that she would need for that. Uh, the husband, the man, would go and he'd begin building a house, preparing a place for his wife. Uh, John 14 is a beautiful picture of that, as we see what that looks like in, in that culture. 
And when he was ready, he'd gather his wedding party, and they would come, and it'd be this joyful celebration as he would take his bride. They'd go to the father's house. They'd have the ceremony. And then later, after that festivities and the party, uh, that, that, that wedding, that marriage would be consummated. And then it was totally official. But she was espoused to this man named Joseph. And as we understand that in their culture, it helps us understand some aspects of the story that might slip by our Western mindset. The passage goes on and says that she was of the house of David. Now, as you read through that verse, the grammatical construction can indicate either Mary or Joseph as far as being tied to the house of David. I don't think it really matters because in actuality, they both are. And Olivia did a good job of reading that through in that little sketch, uh, one through, the, through, the, through David's son Nathan and the other through David's son Solomon. But why is that a big deal? Well, the Messiah had to come from the house of David, had to be connected to David's house so that he could sit on David's throne. And so the angel makes it very clear that that's what was taking place. So this angel came to Nazareth to the home of a young lady named Mary, and he came with an amazing message. And we're going to spend some time on this because there's quite a bit here, and, and again, we won't do it justice. But it's likely that Mary, as a, either a, an older teenager, maybe early 20s, uh, they married younger in those days, uh, she probably still lived at home. And yet it appears the, the angel came to her alone at that time, and so her father was probably out at work. Perhaps her mom was visiting someone, or maybe she was at the market doing things that were required for the household, but she was outside the home. And it's there as Mary is by herself that suddenly there's an angel that comes into her presence. Let's begin reading at verse 28. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. His presence startles her. He just suddenly appeared. <laughs> How many of you guys are prone to being startled? <laughs> Maybe you're like focusing on something and your, your mind is totally engaged in what you're doing and somebody sneaks up behind you or just walks up behind you. You don't hear them and they say your name and you like jump out of your skin. Uh, we've had people in the church, um, Margaret Chilcote, I'll mention her. Maybe she's listening to this one on uh, the recording. She would clean the church and I'd be in and out of the church doing different things. And it didn't matter how hard I tried not to scare her. She would jump out of her skin every single time. And uh, that's just kind of the way that she was wired. I wonder if that's what happened to Mary. She's there doing her thing, whatever she's working on. All of a sudden, there's an angel standing right there in front of her. Imagine what that must have been like. His presence startled her, and, and she, he, he responds quickly with a typical greeting. He says, hail. Uh, it's the word for rejoice. It means be glad, be well. All health, happiness, and prosperity attend unto you if you want a wordy definition. Uh, that's the idea. Be well, rejoice, be happy. Why? Because you are highly favored. And folks, that's the root word for grace. God has graced you. He has greatly graced you. He's honored you with blessing. He's encompassed you with favor. And what was this favor that he was speaking of? Mary had been singled out from all other women in the world to be the mother of the Christ child. Wow, hail thou that are highly favored. He goes on to say the Lord is with thee. In a very real sense, he was going to be even with her more. And he goes on to say, blessed art thou among women. She's blessed by God as he's about to bestow this honor upon her, but blessed by others. It's in the future tense, and the idea that, that people will continue to bless Mary. And that took place pretty quickly, as we saw last week. Remember when she comes and visits Elizabeth? What does Elizabeth say? Blessed be thou, Mary, and the son of thy, of this, of thy womb. But not only does this message startle her, this message troubles her. 
Verse 29, it says, when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying. That's interesting. It was what he said that troubled her, not so much his appearance and who he was. The word means to be disturbed or perplexed. I think that makes sense. We can understand how that would take place. This was all so unexpected and so sudden and so extraordinary. And I think she's so troubled she can't even speak. Because the verse says that she's casting about in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. Um, their thoughts were a blur of activity as she tried to wrap her mind around what this angel has said. You can imagine what that must have been like. Uh, the word there is the word that we get the idea of dialogue from. It's, it's this intense inward deliberation, serious mental ping pong going on. as she's trying to bounce these ideas around inside of her head. The, the balance of fear and then joy and then uncertainty and amazement and belief and disbelief and questions coming to mind that she doesn't even know how to ask, let alone no answers to. You can imagine what that must have been like. Well, the angel goes on and we see next that his message reassures her. Look at verse 30. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. And he'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. This message reassures here. He starts by saying, Fear not. Evidently, this look on her face betrayed what was going on inside. I imagine so. And so he says, don't be afraid. Mary, he repeats the idea, You've been, you have found favor with God. Found is an interesting word. It's the idea that God was looking. God was looking for this one, and he's found this person in you. As I thought about that this week, that this week my mind went back naturally, I think, to 2 Chronicles 16.9. Does that verse ring a bell? The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on the behalf of those whose heart is perfect towards him. That's what he did with Mary. That's what he found with Mary. And I think he's looking for the same thing with us. And if our hearts are perfect towards him, he'll show himself strong in our behalf as well, just like he did here for Mary. Well, he goes on and he uses the word behold, which is next, and that's a sharp interjection. It's used to arrest attention. Behold, Mary, listen closely to what I have to say. This is important. And he goes on to say, you will conceive in your womb. I need to think about this a little bit more. I don't know if I'm making more of this than I should, but I jotted in my notes this was not a normal conception. It's interesting, but this phrase, conceive in your womb, is not used anywhere else in Scripture. There's a lot of conceptions and births that are talked about in Scripture, and usually it talks, you will conceive and bear a son, right? We'll have things like that. But conceive in your womb, and I wonder if, if it's unique because the fact that this birth was going to be unique as well. I don't know. I need to think on that a little bit more. Bat it around in your own mind and see what you think. But it goes on and says, you'll bring forth a son. And when you bring forth a son, you need to call his name Jesus. The word means Jehovah saves. Mary, you're going to bear the Savior, the Messiah, God incarnate. You will call his name Jesus and he'll be great. The word there is megas. It just sounds big, doesn't it? Great in virtue and power and ability. How can he say he'll be great? Well, he can be, say he'll be great because he's God. He could be nothing else but great. And he'll be called the son of the highest, the son of the most high, the son of God. This isn't attributed to Jesus uh, by, by right of creation as with men or angels. We're called sons of God too by creation. 
It's not given to him by adoption as, as believers. We can claim to be sons of God because he's adopted us into his family. But he can claim this by nature because he is God in very essence. He is God. He is the Son of God. And it goes on to say that God will give him the throne of his father, David. As divine, he's the Son of God. As, as man, he's the Son of David. And as the Son of David, he can inherit the throne. He's entitled to the throne. It goes on to say he'll reign over the house of David. Israel once again has a king. And of that kingdom, there will be no end. Can you imagine what Mary must be thinking? This is an incredible barrage of information. It's like she's trying to drink out of a fire hose. He just kept saying thing after thing after thing, point after point after point, and it's overwhelming her. I'm sure her head was spinning. We go on to see that this message confused her. In verse 34, she said unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I don't know a man? Of all things she could question, she parks on this one. <laughs> it's ironic a little bit, isn't it? I'm thinking to myself, boy, I've got a lot of other questions that I'd, I'd be asking. This isn't the first one that would come to my mind. But I think it reveals her innocence. I think it reveals her modesty. Now, one commentator put it this way, her response is remarkable in itself. No expression of doubt or amazement as to who this baby was and how he could be the Messiah, but a simple, naive question that spoke to her purity and her modesty. How can this be? She understood from Isaiah 7 the Messiah would be born of a virgin. She now understands that she's the one to whom he will be born. But her question focuses on the how. How can I conceive? I've never been with a man. You know, maybe there's another reason that she asked this question. Gabriel is giving her so much information all at once. It's possible she never even got through the second point. <laughs> and everything else just kind of went right over the top of her head, and she got stuck on that one and didn't really totally process the rest. I don't know. Gabriel then goes on and enlightens her. We see number five, his message enlightens her. Look at verse 35. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. The power of the highest shall overshadow thee, and therefore that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Mary, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. He's going to come at a specific time in a specific place. The power of the highest, the power of the most high will overshadow you. Uh, the word overshadow, it's the idea of a cloud coming and enveloping you. Have you ever been out in the midst of a, of a cloudy day or a foggy day, and maybe you're hiking and you get up a little higher and the fog just kind of envelops you? Uh, you've had that experience. I think we all have. Uh, this is a, that's the best human illustration I think that we can give. It's like the Shekinah glory of coming down in a cloud. The clouds commonly used in the Old Testament as a symbol of the presence and the power of God. And the angel said that the Holy Spirit's going to come like a cloud and envelop you. And that holy thing that will be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Now, does that raise some questions in your mind? It does in mine. <laughs> and yet that's what the angel told her. And that was enough for her at that point. This act would be miraculous. Joseph wasn't going to be the father. It wasn't going to be a natural conception. It's going to be supernatural. The Holy Spirit will envelop and overshadow you as the Shekinah glory of God overshadows the tabernacle and temple. In a way, Mary, your womb is going to become the holy of holies for the Son of God himself. Wow. And then, Mary, this is going to be completely unique. This is a one-of-a-kind conception for the one and only Son of God, allowing him to be at once fully man and fully God. Wow. That's a lot to process. But I love Mary's response. I put in the notes that elicited a beautiful response from Mary. Look down at verse 38. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. 
Be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. What a response. What a response. I would have wanted some questions answered before I agreed to these terms. I'd want to see the fine print. I'd want to see some things in writing. This is pretty, this is pretty life-changing for Mary. But we see her response, first of all, marked by humility. She uses the word handmaid. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. And that's not just the idea of a servant. It's the lowest term you could use for a servant, for a female servant. She, she's not lifting or exalting herself up. The angel has done that. She's putting herself in humility, saying, I, I don't deserve this. I'm the lowest of all servants. It's also marked by surrender. She says, be it unto me according to your word. I'm at your disposal. Do with me as you will. Whatever glorifies you, whatever honors you, I'm willing, body, soul, spirit, I completely surrender to you. What a beautiful picture. You know, in a day when a a lady's rights to her own body has become such a talking point, it's refreshing to see one who so completely trusts God that she's willing to inconvenience herself in order to accomplish his will. Mary's a role model here. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful response. Folks, it's not a response that Mary should have alone. It's a response that we too should emulate, isn't it? See that in Romans chapter 12. Beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. God's asking the same thing from us. What Mary did here is amazing, and and it affected the rest of her life. But God's asking the same thing from us. Oh, that we would have the same response that Mary did here in this passage. Oh, there's so much in this story that we could look at, and and we just want to pause briefly and mention a couple because I want to get to one other aspect of the story uh, to work through in more detail. Uh, We talked last week about Elizabeth and about Mary's visit to her, and and, and I'm not going to get into detail about that. Uh, If you look down through the passage, we see that in 39, and then in verse 46, we see Mary's song of praise. Uh, We're not going to park there today, but wow, what a passage. Uh, Take some time this week and read that over and think about all the Old Testament allusions in the Psalms and also in the book of 1 Samuel with the song of of Hannah. Uh, So many similarities that we can see there. Uh, What a great psalm of praise that that lifts up the Lord. It's called the Magnificat, and people have used this to lift up Mary, but that wasn't the purpose at all. It was to lift up her Savior and, and her Heavenly Father. I think about the return trip to Nazareth. She was there uh, with Elizabeth for three months. And just before John is born, she leaves. And have you guys noticed that return trips are always harder than the trip going? <laughs> you know, on the way there, you're excited because there's new stuff and you're going to see people and there's a reason for going the way back. It's just, oh, I've got to get home. <laughs> and I'm back to the grind. But what was weighing heavily on her mind? There was a bump starting to show. How was she going to explain this to her husband, Joseph? I mean, she's been gone for three months. What's he going to assume? I'm sure it broke her heart as she was thinking about that. Would he believe her? What if he didn't believe her? How can I say this in a way that he's going to understand? Really, I've got to tell him that an angel came and talked to me? That hasn't happened for 400 years. Like, he's going to believe me. We don't know how that conversation went. I'm curious. But I'm sure his doubts of her fidelity must have broken her heart as he weighed the options that were before him. But graciously... The angel comes to Joseph, just like he did to Zacharias and to Mary, confirmed her story, and Joseph does the honorable thing, and he takes Mary formally to be his wife. He sped up that process. Remember we said marriage is in two phases. 
He sped up that second phase and he took her to be his wife legally and physically. Now they're in the same place, but he doesn't become intimate with her until after the child is born. And that's why we see later in Luke where he uses the word she's still a spouse to a man named Joseph. Even though they were together and the marriage was formally complete. Well, we can imagine the accusations and the ridicule, uh, the knowing looks that people begin to give them. Oh, why did you speed up the process? You can imagine what they were going through. The stigma of unwed motherhood would have weighed heavily upon both of them. With that context now, let's move to Luke chapter 2. We saw the encounter with the angel. Let's look next at Mary's birth of the Christ child. We find that in Luke chapter 2, and again, you know these verses. You can probably quote these first eight verses. It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. We see beginning a, first, a worldwide decree. A direct edict from the supreme Roman ruler himself. That's not something that's going to be ignored. What Caesar Augustus wants, Caesar Augustus gets. <laughs> and he wants to know who all is in his kingdom, he's going to get who all is in his kingdom. And he makes this edict that all the world, all the known world, all the world that's under his control would be taxed. Your translation might say registered. It really is the same idea. It, it's the idea to, to, to have a census, to be enrolled for the purpose of what? So he get exact taxes. Uh, the two go hand in hand, and, and one is not a better translation than the other. But they were to report to their hometowns and fill out the registration paperwork. And this was a burden. Mary and Joseph were poor people. We see that because when they came to the temple to dedicate the, the baby, they brought the lowest, the, the most affordable sacrifice that they could bring. They were not wealthy. This was, this was a difficult thing for them. But they reported to their hometown of Bethlehem to fill out registration papers. Folks, as we read through this story, keep in mind that these are real people. These are real events in real cities, real locations. This, this actually happened. And Luke is giving us so many details here. A person that read this in that day could go to the Roman rolls and they could look this up and see that there really was a man named Joseph and he really had a wife named Mary and he really was from the town of Nazareth and he really did go to Bethlehem for the census. They could see he was a carpenter. I don't know what else was in the questionnaire that he had to fill out, but all those details were there and could be verified. And the Jewish people had no reason, have no excuse to doubt. The information was there if they wanted to find it. But this edict by this worldwide dictator fulfilled a prophecy found in Micah 2, that this baby would be born in Bethlehem. So we see this worldwide decree. Secondly, we see, I'm going to say a miserable trip. I can't imagine what it must have been like to travel from Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem, almost at full term. It just boggles my mind. Do you walk? Do you ride the donkey? Do you rock? Do you, ride? do you do neither? Do you sit for a while? You're not comfortable no matter what you're doing. I'm sure Joseph chose the most, uh, the most gentle route that he could have. It's interesting to me that I don't, as I was reading this week, I don't think Mary was required to go. Now, this was a patriarchal society. I think Joseph could have gone and registered for his whole family. Uh, that's the indication from what I was, was, what I was reading. She could have stayed home. And I'm sure they batted around the pros and cons. Better to stay, better to go. Which is the, which is the better choice? I'm sure Joseph didn't want to leave her alone. I don't want to leave you in Nazareth. 
I, I don't want to leave you subject to the ridicule that we're both facing together, but then your times, uh, you're almost due. It's very likely that, that you'll have the baby while I'm gone. He wants to be there to support her in that time of her need. I think they're also thinking ahead to the fact that the law required 40 days after the birth to go and dedicate this baby after her purification time was done. That would be in Jerusalem. Bethlehem's a lot closer to Jerusalem than Nazareth. Do we try to do, we try to do both? Go to, to Bethlehem and then back to Nazareth and make the trip again? All those things are going through their minds as they're working through this. It's possible that they even considered, let's just relocate in, in the hometown of Bethlehem anyway. Let's just go and relocate. We don't know all those details. But I can't imagine how difficult that trip must have been so close to full term. But as we move on in the story, we now see a marvelous birth. Look at verse 6. And so it was that while they were there, they made it to Bethlehem. The days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Marvelous in its simplicity. Glorious in its humility. Two verses to describe the birth of the Son of God in this world. You know, it's interesting. It's almost the same as when we see Jesus' death. Just a very small little bit of information. This miracle, God keeps a lot of it shrouded in mystery because it's such a wonderful event. This marvelous birth. Birth is one of two events in life you can't postpone. (laughs) When birth pangs come, it's coming. You can't postpone it. You can't put it off. Let's reschedule this. That's not an option at that point. I realized the inn was full to overflowing due to the number of travelers that were there at that time. And so in the privacy of a stable, our Lord was brought into this world. This whole story is marked by humility. It's not the way you'd write the story if you were making something up. (laughs) Not the way I'd write the story anyway. You'd want it grand and glorious. He's the king of the universe. But that's not the way it happened. And it's not the way God recorded it for us. But there in that stable, Mary gave birth, and she wrapped this little body in swaddling clothes. I'm sure she nursed him right off the bat, and she held him close in awe and wonder, placed him in the manger. The God of the universe became God with us. Emmanuel, that's what the word means. What a wonder. We'll just mention it here. We're not going to go on into the rest of the passage, but from eight, verse 8 down to verse 21, we see an unlikely group of worshipers, and I think we'll focus on them next week. But the serenity of that evening is interrupted by a group of shepherds. They've seen angelic visitors as well, and they've come desiring a glimpse of their Messiah. Now, ladies, be honest. <laughs> You've just traveled all the way to Bethlehem. It's been a horrible trip. You've just given birth in a manger. Are you really going to be excited about a group of shepherds coming, strangers, and visiting you at that point in in the day? I don't think that's that's going to happen. You're like, Joseph, send them away. They can come back tomorrow or next week. (laughs) But Mary, in her humility, allows them to come in. She welcomes them, allows them to see the baby. I think she's amazed as she watches them worship this baby. It reinforces everything that the angels said would be true. Wow, what a story. My mind continues on with all the things that aren't said here in this passage. What was it like as they now begin to find and set up a house and a home there in Bethlehem? The trip to Jerusalem to dedicate the child, we do see a little bit about that with Simeon and Anna as they rejoice and publicly worship the Messiah. Wonderful stories. The gifts of the Magi as they came, what must that have been like? This caravan from the east, it wasn't just three. Three gifts, way more people. 
as they come and they worship this child at that point as well. The dream of Joseph and this emergency trip to Egypt, that wouldn't have been any fun. Pack up quickly, grab everything we need. We've got to get out of here. It's got to, we've got to save the child's life. And then returning to Nazareth where she raised the Christ child. <laughs> what must that have been like? She raised him along with the rest of the family that God gave her uh, later on in life. Folks, the word that we chose to represent Mary is the word wonder. And I think that word fits very well. The dictionary definition defines wonder as a feeling of surprise mingled with awe caused by something beautiful, unexpected, and inexplicable. Does that describe what happened to Mary? Absolutely. Mary couldn't help but be the voice of wonder after what happened to her. I was trying to think of how to conclude this and what to leave us with. I've chosen this. After the shepherd's visit, the text says that Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. She kept them. She treasured them. The word means to preserve or to keep from being lost. The idea is she continually called them back to her mind over and over, lest it be forgotten. And in so doing, I think she never lost that sense of wonder, even through the challenges and difficulties of life. You know, I suspect the same could work for us. How do we read this story and not lose the sense of wonder? Because we've heard it so many times. Well, folks, we need to hold the truths close. We need to ponder them. We need to meditate upon them in our hearts. We need to to avoid the busyness of the season and take time to get alone with God and think about them. Thank him for them. And when we do that, like Mary, I believe we we too can retain our sense of wonder. As we contemplate the fact that the God of this universe would send his only son to this earth to save you and to save me. Folks, that's a wonder beyond belief. And so as we close, I ask you today, do you know this Jesus Christ is your savior? Do you know him? He's more than just a baby in a manger that we look at during Christmas season. He's the savior of the world. He came to this earth to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin by dying upon a cross, taking your place. He came to offer us the gift of eternal life in heaven with him and an abundant life here on this earth. Oh, my friends, if you don't know Jesus, it would be my privilege to talk to you and explain how you can know him today. If you do know him, think through these truths, meditate on them, ponder them this week. Maintain that sense of wonder that Jesus Christ would come to this earth and die for you. What a wonder. Father, I thank you for the passage that we've looked at today. Got a story that I've heard since I was a, ba- a child myself. I think most of us would, would agree with that. We've heard this over and over. You know, I was struck anew by Mary and her response to you. Father, her response of humility and submission and just being willing to do whatever it is that you asked, even though she didn't understand. Willing to say, God, I trust you enough to let you do whatever you want to do. God, may we give our lives so completely and fully to you with that same motivation, that same mindset. God, here's my life. Take it. Do with me what you will. Father, what a, what a beautiful picture of submission we see in Mary. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us this week to ponder these truths, keep them close to our heart, meditate upon them. Father, may the wonder of Christmas not be lost in us in the busyness of this season. And for that, Lord, we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.